You have a relationship to space and time and a relationship to how you think about futures. But what brings all of these perspectives together is that they intersect the ideas of imagination, liberation, technology, mysticism. It values intuition and the realm of the divine feminine, but it also recognizes that time is not linear. Hi, I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest stories down to earth. In the last few years, one art movement has become a household name in a way that few recent art movements can match. This is Afrofuturism. From the Metropolitan Museum of Art installing an Afrofuturist period room, to the blockbuster movie Black Panther and its sequel, to an upcoming survey of the movement at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, Afrofuturism is being canonized in art and beyond. It's an extraordinarily rich tradition, bringing together influences from experimental jazz and Detroit techno, sci-fi and fantasy, art and technology. With Black History Month here, we decided to dig into Afrofuturist art history with Yatasha Womack. Yatasha is the author of Afrofuturism, the world of Black sci-fi and fantasy culture. She's also an artist herself, actively working in the tradition now. So, how can you define the Afrofuturist aesthetic? What are some of its touchstones? And why has there been such a surge of excitement around Afrofuturism in the recent past? Yatasha Womack, thank you for joining me on The Art Angle. Oh, thanks for the invitation. So you are an artist and a performer and a writer. You were in Painter Kehinde Wiley's Black Rock Senegal residency last year and in the Dakar Biennial as well. Even more recently, your short story Liquid Twilight is in this anthology of Black speculative fiction called Africa Risen, which is nominated for an NAACP Image Award for Literary Work. But about 10 years ago, you wrote this book introducing the galaxy of culture around Afrofuturism that has had a really long afterlife as an entry point to the concept for a whole generation of people. So how did Afrofuturism first come on your radar? Well, I was always familiar with the concepts this idea of being a Black person who has a relationship to space or time or thinking about yourself in the future, contemplating histories and how you can build to create futures that value humanity. That kind of language and that visioning was just a part of how I grew up. There were all these kind of music moments where I'm thinking about Parliament Funkadelic and the space imagery there or thinking about house music and hip-hop and kind of this foundation of looking at digital music as a basis for music of the future. I mean, all of these things are just a part of how I grew up. And when I was a college student at Clark Atlanta University, there were students who were always talking about ideas that we now call Afrofuturist ideas. I mean, that was like the campus conversation. Right. You have this great narrative in the book about being schooled, about some of these musical references, how deep they were. I grew up listening to Parliament and Funkadelic, like many of us. And 
know, I just thought it was great music and cool costumes. And a friend of mine at college said, but did you ever really think about the lyrics and what they were saying? And, and I said, no, I was dancing to it. But he was talking about that and he was juxtaposing these ideas of future speak and thinking about quantum physics and then talking about African technologies and way of knowing self and art and hip hop to create new features. And now at some point I just asked him, what do you call this? And he didn't know, but we had some shared references for various books we read on metaphysics and we sort of built from there. But many years later, after I started writing professionally, I met a woman who told me that she was teaching Afrofuturism. I said, well, what is that? And as she described it, I said, wait, that was the conversation friends of mine were having at college. I'd met countless artists who were looking to explore ideas of future and time travel in their, their musical work. I'd met people who were really excited about comics and wanted to have more representation in comic spaces. So I said, wait, this idea is now being taught. And so I reached out to a friend of mine named John Jennings, who was curating these shows on independent Black comic book creators. And as we were talking, he said, oh, yeah, Afrofuturism, it's this term. And he was giving me some newer references. I was excited, but I was also appalled because I had done so much work in the culture affiliated in art spaces, and I hadn't heard this term before. And I knew people who felt very isolated, who felt marginalized because they were thinking about comics and quantum physics and Black cultures, and these were not, quote-unquote, acceptable conversations. So a lot of my focus in writing the book was centered around thinking about people who thought about these ideas all the time, but were not encouraged to build upon them. So you were part of this convening at the Smithsonian around Afrofuturist art, which became this Smithsonian documentary, Afrofuturism, The Origin Story. And I was watching that last night, and one of the speakers there talks about Afrofuturism almost as a lens you can view a whole range of phenomenon through in this sort of broader field of energy. How would you define Afrofuturism for people just coming into this conversation? Well, I remind people that all cultures have a relationship to space and time. And that relationship for people in the African diaspora and the continent is evident in our art, our storytelling, how we convene, our music, etc. Clearly, we're based in different places around the world, but these relationships, their differences are complementary. All that to say that Afrofuturism is a way of looking at futures or alternate realities, but you're doing so through Black cultural lenses. So whether you're from Bahia or London or Chicago, New York, Botswana, you have a relationship to space and time and a relationship to how you think about futures. But what brings all of these perspectives together is that they intersect the ideas of imagination, liberation, technology, and mysticism. It values intuition and the realm of the divine feminine 
but it also recognizes that time is not linear. And if you look at any works that we call Afrofuturist, you'll see a combination of these ideas at play. Right. Well, maybe that gets us straight along into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which was Sun Ra. And he seems to be an almost inevitable name that comes up in the conversation about Afrofuturism as a precursor. This comes from before the movement became self-conscious, as you're talking about, as a cultural force. But his fusion of mythological references and outer space references seems to be a guiding star for people, so to speak. So talk about the influence of Sun Ra. Sun Ra is a fascinating figure. And when I learned about the term Afrofuturism itself, that's when I came into knowing Sun Ra, the man, the myth, and the music. Oh, really? So you came to him through Afrofuturism? I grew up with a lot of music. A lot of family members played a lot of jazz. I don't recall anyone playing Sun Ra. And in just my growing up life, he was not a common figure. He was not a reference. I think there's a reason for that. Sun Ra, as amazing as he was and as prolific as he was, even within jazz communities, he was considered to be a bit of an outlier. But he had so much influence. There were members of Sun Ra's band who went on to found the AACM which is this avant-garde jazz collective that does experimental music and the tradition that Sun Ra does. I would say much of the realm of experimental jazz flows out of Sun Ra's influence. Sun Ra is most unique because he really believed that he was from Saturn and that he was brought to the world to heal the world with music. He tells this story which probably dates to the late 40s or early 50s, where he felt he was either abducted by aliens or had some sort of spiritual transformation where he recognized that this feeling that he had, that he wasn't quite part of this world, was verified by the fact that he wasn't quite from this world. He was from Saturn and brought here with the mission. While he was born in Birmingham and he came to Chicago in his early years and then spent a lot of time in both New York and Philadelphia, everywhere he went, he seemed to really corral a community of musicians who believed in this relationship between space and Black culture, people who were really invested in this idea of the altered destiny. Essentially, the altered destiny, it could be both destination it could be a state of mind where people elevate in consciousness to be able to create the kinds of futures that value humanity. So Sun Ra expressed this through the musical chords that he experimented with. He called himself Sun Ra, naming himself after the Egyptian god himself. And his music was very much rooted in a kind of time travel. So he talked about himself being from Saturn, but then he's also an Egyptian god. He's in the past. He's in the present. Time collapses in his musical explorations. And probably the most interesting album to listen to, to really get insight into this, is the Space is the Place album. Now, there's a movie that goes with it, which is fascinating as well. But the album, it is a journey a transformational one. And, you know, 
started to dig into a lot of writings coming out of the 60s and moving into the 70s, you know, I saw that Sun Rock was a contributor to the cricket, which was a Black avant-garde jazz magazine. He was teaching at Berkeley. He was in a lot of spaces where he had a great deal of influence. And I think over time, people who saw him perform didn't forget it. But then there were also a lot of people who saw him perform who did not talk about it. I love this idea that almost he's a figure talking about the future and the past and mixing together of time, but also is also kind of admitting a transmission that is to the future that is like picked up in the conversation about Afrofuturism with like a higher resolution. People can hear it in a way that he literally was out of his time, you know, (laughs) speaking to a future that hadn't been built yet. Right. And it's so interesting. Yeah, I wrote the liner notes for the reissue of the Space of the Place album, Really, um, which I'm quite proud of. And when I was listening to the album again, it just dawned on me that he talked about space and place as being so many things. He really inverted what space could be. Space was literal outer space. It was this destination to get to. Sometimes he would say, you're going to the altar destiny. Other times he would say, I am the altar destiny. He would collapse all of these perspectives of self and in ways that really felt very liberating. Isn't it the case that in Sun Ra, the sense of alienness and out-of-timeness is also a kind of way to channel a feeling of alienation of Black people from a white culture that doesn't treat them like people or doesn't see them? And that was probably the basis for what he did. Sun Ra seemed to be a, a very sensitive soul. He was a pacifist, and he at one point wanted to intern with NASA or work with NASA to try to remix space sounds. I mean, these are things that he's thinking about way before anyone else is really thinking about them. But he was deeply disturbed by the tensions in the world around race. And I think that's why it's sort of fascinating that he talks about his Blackness as being like the Blackness of space, ever expansive. My perspective on his reason for doing this is that he wanted to expand the notion of what Blackness was and how he experienced it. And so he was asserting himself as this deity of sorts from another world. And it was designed to really obliterate limitation, limitations placed upon him because of his race, limitations placed upon him for any number of reasons. Samra was one of the first jazz musicians to really incorporate both African instruments and early digital electronic instruments into jazz. So even to just justify that creatively, it helped him to think of himself as being alien. The second major touchstone for the Afrofuturist conversation is also a musical touchstone, which you also mentioned, George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic and their cosmology that they built in the 70s. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's not a linear line of influence between Sun Ra and Parliament. Not directly. Now, that isn't to say that George Clinton wasn't familiar with them. He did know him. He did say that they spoke from the same vantage point. But I don't know if we could fairly say that he was directly influenced initially George Clinton tends to tell a story of exploring the space tropes. He talks about it more like it was a statement of pragmatism. You're going on the road, 
you don't want to iron clothes. So you say, hey, let's <laughs> let's wear these other outfits that don't require ironing. Or we're speaking to college students. They were all into ideas about space. Hey, let's talk about space. And that's the way he tends to describe it. But that said, the musical approach and the way that the music was able to uplift people and transform people was similar to Sun Ra. I mean, if you go to a George Clinton concert, sometimes they will play all of four songs and they will play them so long that you feel a bit of transformation. The bass, the lyrics, you are flying, so to speak, and not doing so through other substances, but literally through the music. So. I think his approach to funk music was one that was about freeing minds as well. They had a lot of fun tropes with it, but there were always messages about questioning society, not accepting things as they were presented. It was done so in kind of a fun, tongue-in-cheek, trickster kind of way. You talk about One Nation Under a Groove, other songs that fell in their catalog where it's all music that at the heart of it was about liberation. The great British artist and filmmaker John Acomfra has a film called The Last Angel of History, which is an experimental documentary looking at Afrofuturism as a concept. When he interviews George Clinton in that movie, and one of the things Clinton says there is that, well, Blackness had become commodified by the early 70s and that he was trying to find a way to speak outside of that. Right. Expansion. Expansion of identity. Blackness was perceived as something very specific that was marketable at the time. And he wanted to step out of that space, which much like Samra, for him, it's stepping into outer space. Off of the dance floor, another big name associated with this foment is Octavia Butler, the sci-fi writer Mm -hmm. who's important novel, Kindred, was published in 1979. So tell me about where Butler fits into this conversation. So it's funny, the seminal conversation I had with a friend of mine from college who was from Philadelphia, where Sunrise spent a great deal of time. One of the names he mentioned in that conversation was Octavia Butler. He's saying, oh, and there's this woman, her name is Octavia Butler, and she writes science fiction, and she's a Black woman. I mean, now Octavia Butler is more of a common name and much more popular than she was in the past. But it stood out to my friend in college at the time that, look, there's a Black woman writing science fiction. And that standing out to him just sort of reidified how white the space was presented or perceived. So Octavia Butler is really an interesting figure because she kind of tells an untold story. You know, a lot of her characters are not the typical heroines or heroes that you would see in the science fiction of the time. So her books, uh, Parable of the Sower, or her books, Kindred, usually her characters are Black women. And in the case of Parables of the Sower, she has a main character who's a teenager going through a tumultuous a world that's sort of turning upside down. Some people have paralleled it to our pandemic period. And she's using her journal to both gather, remember wisdom of the past to bring forward, but also to just take notes of things that are coming, things that are happening, lessons and wisdom insights that she has to build for a future world that they feel is in the making. So Octavia Butler, 
I think really crack the world of science fiction open by presenting new characters and new perspectives. As far as I can tell, the visual arts are less clearly part of this prehistory of Afrofuturism period that we're talking about. But there are definitely precedents and references. And one that you mentioned to me earlier is the Oshun Gallery, founded in 1968 on the South Shore neighborhood of Chicago as an experimental space for Black artists. And since this is a visual art podcast, I thought it was important to bring that in. Tell me about the Oshun Gallery. The Oshun Gallery was founded in 68, ran until 1982, and it was ran by a woman named Yaounde Olu. She created a style that she called kind of retrofuturism, but it's essentially Afrofuturism. And she thought of herself as creating kind of mostly digital art, some was painted, that hark to ancient times, but advanced ancient times. Her particular gallery was a space where a lot of artists, some of whom we would describe as Afrofuturists today, some of whom were squarely central in the Black arts movement, some of the members of Afrocobra, the Black Arts Collective in Chicago showcased there, Tertel Only, who founded the first Black comic book convention. I saw that. I was looking. He's a figure you talk about in your book. And I was looking up the Oshun Gallery history and saw that he got his start there and then goes on to have this huge impact in the world of Black comic book art, which enters this bigger pop cultural conversation from a different direction. I thought that was a really interesting example of how within this conversation about Afrofuturism, all these lines cross and pollinate in really interesting ways. Right. And one of the things that I like about the Smithsonian's documentary, Afrofuturism, The Origin Story, is that it demonstrates to people that a lot of the ideas of Afrofuturism come out of community. They come out of these created spaces where artists get to explore some of their ideas. People in the community who find these ideas of interest get to see working artists presenting works that interrogate space and time. And it kind of normalizes this sort of exploration. And that, I think, is pretty exciting. Well, one question that just comes to my head based on the Oshun Gallery lineage is what is the relationship between some of this proto-Afrofuturist material and the Black arts movement that defined the 1960s and 70s for a lot of artists? Sure. Well, I'll speak more in an African-American context. You know, people are always interrogating the future and how to move forward. Sankofa is a Inayana Khan symbol. It's essentially a bird that's looking back at its tail. It's a common reference in Pan-Africanist work and Afrofuturism as well. It's kind of loosely means to go back and fetch it, which essentially is a cool way of saying that you need to look to the past in order to move forward. And so this sort of process of constantly looking to the past and taking elements there as building blocks to move forward is a theme in both Pan-Africanist work, both the Black arts movement and Afrofuturism. This notion of thinking about a future is not one that people of the African descent could really take for granted. So thinking about a future always requires a kind of interrogation because sometimes there's entities that are saying, one, you don't have a future, or two, 
you shouldn't have the agency to be able to create a future. So having visions of futures, being able to create work that speaks to it, and also being able to create work that speaks to futures of the past (laughs) is essential to obliterating boundaries around who people are and how they can show up on earth. The term Afrofuturism is coined in the early 90s by Mark Derry in a text called Black to the Future, which has interviews with Greg Tate, the great cultural critic, one of my favorite cultural critics. But then something you talk about in your book is this moment in the late 90s when the scholar Alondra Nelson found something called the Afrofuturism listserv. And there's this convergence of energy in that early internet moment that gathers together a lot of these references and traditions. So tell me about that moment. Alondra Nelson put together a listserv and some of the first people to really use the term Afrofuturism actively in their work or to go on and teach Afrofuturism academically were loosely affiliated or actual parts of this listserv. There are a lot of people who participated. And I think it's interesting that so much of Afrofuturism's popularity is tied to the evolution of the digital world, where people are able to connect with parties who are in other countries or across the country, or across the state, and think about these ideas. But the listserv really became a space for people to exchange ideas, build on concepts. Eventually, many of them went on to create art shows using the term Afrofuturism, or as I mentioned earlier, to teach it as well. Yeah, I love there's this coincidence between the rise of the internet and like more accessible means of communication and the self-conscious naming of Afrofuturism as a trend and claiming of this technological aesthetic. I think that's a really interesting coincidence in that late 90s time. Mm -hmm. So I guess I feel like as we approach the present and there's this explosion of interest in this term, I feel like the term Afrofuturism gets used a bit like the way the term surrealism gets used now, which is that Mm -hmm. it's both a specific art movement or movements, but then it also gets used in a much more general ways to say, oh, that's so surreal, or just a general sense of things that are dreamlike or have unexpected juxtapositions. And I think that some of the same thing happens with Afrofuturism. There's these specific references, and then there's just a more general use of it as a lens to look at black science fiction and fantasy So I wanted to see if I could drill down with you and get some thoughts on the more specific side of it, because there's some features of this conversation that I find that really stick out to me. And you already touched on one, which is this idea of the merger of time periods. Can you talk about this role of the synthesis of the past and present in the Afrofuturist aesthetic? If you think about time as being nonlinear and you think about being informed from all sides of time, that concept really becomes the basis for a lot of works. I think of this idea of Sankofa, you know, bringing the best of the past and moving it forward as almost this motor that propels motion, a centrifuge of creativity for people across the African diaspora and continent. When I think about just futures and past, I think uh, in part because Afrofuturists think of time 
in a way where these moments of the transatlantic slave trade as it relates to colonialism is this apocalypse that happened in the past. And we're moving out of this apocalypse. So when you see these stories that take place in both the past and they take place in a future, it's kind of a recovery of all sides of time, sort of obliterating the notion of separation, that the interruption of, say, transatlantic slave trade and colonialism forged. So the interest in doing that sort of work, I think, is really cultural. You look at a lot of elements in Black American culture, you look at sampling and hip hop music, or you think about how comic collage work is. Some of that is a variation of a remix culture that is tied to this idea of bridging a past and a future. You know, I think there are a lot of spiritual beliefs tied to African, African derived religions that talk about just multiple spaces of existence. Uh, And sometimes that's referenced in Afrofuturist work too. But there's a broad term called Black speculative fiction that kind of houses a lot of works that aren't always squarely Afrofuturist. So you have Afrofuturism, which we've defined. Then you have Afro-surrealism, which Amiri Baraka first noted and then later was explored in the Afro-surrealism manifesto. And that talks more about the present, but sort of the fantastic bombasticness that surfaces in a present liminal space. You have terms called the ethnogothic that are pushed by John Jennings and Stanford Carpenter, and that deals more with your horror spaces. And there are other terms that are surfacing that really break down some of the specific elements that would just fall into speculative thinking. One of the things I, or the passages I loved in your book is talking about this reclaiming of myth and a specific origin myth from the Dogon people in West Africa that's claimed in some Afrofuturist explorations. And you use it to illustrate how the recovery of African heritage syncs up with this interest in sci-fi. What is that myth? The story, as it was interpreted, is that the Dogon people claim they were descendants of of people from a distant star, that distant star being Sirius B. And there are people who argue whether this is possible because Sirius B wasn't visible to the eye until the invention of the telescope. And there are some people who say that that particular tale was misinterpreted. That's not exactly what the people were saying. There's a lot of speculation about How true can this be? But the reality is there's a lot of cultures around the world that have stories about being from distant stars. I think what it asserts for people is that Black people in the ancient world had a relationship to space and time. Indigenous people had a relationship to space and time. Science did not begin with the Renaissance period in Europe. The Dogon story becomes significant in that sense. And you see some Dogon references in various art. And again, there are many African ethnic groups who have these fascinating, not just origin stories, but figures in the society that are are symbols and bridges to what we could call a visible and invisible world, some of which inform storytelling. Well, I perceive that 
almost all mainstream contemporary science fiction really for the last 30 years is dystopian. You know, they're dystopian pictures of the future. And I really see Afrofuturism both in art and in popular culture as a pretty unique force in that it's one of the few real utopian forms of present day science fiction, fabulation, thinking, making, actually imagining the future as potential site of liberation. I think that's really unique. Do you see some of that same energy in it? Oh, absolutely. I think that we're still in a period of working with a lot of cyberpunk imagery in much of our sci-fi, where the system is collapsed, technology is taken over, and the world is in disarray. You are either moving towards a dystopia or in one. And a lot of Afrofuturists, because they look at time a little differently, they see the interruption of the transatlantic slave trade or colonialism as a very major apocalypse, but it was in the past. And there's other cultures as well that have these very apocalyptic moments that are centered in the past. So when you're watching stories and they're like, oh, people are being enslaved. Well, okay, that happened already. Or, oh, women don't have rights. Well, that happened already. Oh, the machines are taking over. Well, the slave trade was very systematized in a way where it had people operating as if they were robots. So that just sort of shift in positioning, I think creates a lens where people feel they're kind of moving out of a dystopia. Even if things aren't perfect, they're looking for the opportunity in the moment to build and expand and liberate. And I think there's an idea too that you can kind of imagine these free spaces and then be inspired by that to transform or have some sense of agency and build today. Now that you're talking, I wonder if there's not also a connection to some of the history we're talking about, how some of this Afro-futurist foment was in the kind of transition to the Black is Beautiful period in culture, in the Black arts movement, where it really was like getting rid of the implanted European culture as like the standard of beauty. And then the future which involves also this recovery of astral myths and becomes a resource for thinking of a beautiful future identity for yourself. Well, I think for a lot of people, especially in the West, who, I mean, throughout the 20th century, you know, you always had these, I'll say, geniuses who were kind of creating spaces for people to connect more with either African expressions or African expressions as they are expressed by people in the Americas. And I think about W.B. Du Bois writing science fiction. You have, you know, a lot of comics and Black newspapers that were dealing with science fiction elements in the 50s and the 60s. And also you always had these very future thinking people. I think the 60s and 70s are unique because the Black is Beautiful movement was paralleling, of course, the civil rights movement, the Black arts movement. So you have this real cultural genesis of imagery. And a lot of that imagery that we associate with the Black arts movement or Black is Beautiful movement, you see evident in Afrofuturist works too. As people were able to express themselves more <laughs> in public spaces, the more they're able to express themselves with the changes in our society, the more you see these kinds of tales and stories surface and be accepted. 
On a different note in this conversation, something I thought was really thought-provoking in your book was your account of the increasing popularity of Afrofuturism in the 2000s and 2010s as being connected to an increasing visibility of the black nerd as a cultural image in general. And maybe that could sound derogatory, but it, it's something you talk about. And so I wanted to ask you, why is what you call claiming the freedom to be nerds important? <laughs> well, I don't know about you, but when I was like a kid coming up, being called a nerd was just not what you wanted to be called. Yeah. Uh, and as technology became more of a part of our way of life, that nerd culture was mainstreamed. You think about President Obama. He was very much, you could call a black nerd in one sense. A guy with a lot of savoir-faire, but, you know, just this whole idea that you have this acceptance of people being really intelligent, but then also being really excited about things that were sometimes called geeky and being able to just express that visibly. Guys didn't just have to be in sports. They could openly show that they were really excited about things in science or technology too. And I think some of this was also tied just with the proliferance uh, and popularity of just tech jobs. I suspect for our listeners, art and non-art alike, the key reference in the Afrofuturism conversation will be the 2018 movie Black Panther, which was an immense hit. And here, Angela Bassett is nominated for an Academy Award, and she's the first actor to be nominated for a Marvel movie for her role in the sequel to that film. But that popularity of Black Panther was itself part of the mainstreaming of comic book and nerd culture, and which really is now the mainstream culture. So how much do you think the current Afrofuturist discussion really draws on these Black avant-garde culture references that we're talking about and musical references? And how much is it just about this general mainstreaming of comic book and technology and science fiction? Well, I think it's a mix of both. Things that move to the center and that are viewed as mainstream sometimes come from avant-garde spaces. Then you have new avant-garde spaces, you know, that evolve. And then those ideas move into tales in the mainstream. So I think the two spaces inform one another. Slightly different objectives, of course, but I do think that they closely inform one another. And a lot of Afrofuturists that I know, they kind of work in a bit of both. They might work in spaces that are viewed as very mainstream and then work in spaces that are viewed as very niche. But once a niche becomes big, <laughs> is it a niche anymore? I think that's what happened with Afrofuturism. Black Panther is such a phenomenon. The film evolves out of a character that most people did not know. It's pretty niche, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people who would have loved the Black Panther comic or didn't know that that particular comic character existed. I really have to give a big cheers to a lot of uh, Black Panther comic fans who were excited about the comic before the film came out because I think it's their interest and then just the demand by various people looking at sci-fi in general wanting more diversity. They said, hey, here's this awesome character. It would be great if we could see that film. Now, I went to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago and they at a Marvel Comics exhibit on how the comics were made and they showed the fashion and the costumes and, and they had Black Panther there, but they described Black Panther as Afrofuturist. 
There's an artist, Martine Sims, who in the early 2010s, about the same time as your book, she wrote a text called The Mundane Afrofuturist Manifesto. And she has a criticism of contemporary Afrofuturism as offering a fantasy of escape from a racist and unjust system. And she speaks of the chastening but hopefully enlivening effect of imagining a world without fantasy bolt holes. What do you think of that kind of criticism of some of this conversation? Well, I think it just expands that different people want different kinds of stories, which is perfectly fine. There are people who are more into the fantastic elements of culture. There are people who want to deal with what they think of as real-world opportunities. To me, I just think that it's most important that creators have the space to write any of those stories. They can write the sci-fi saga that takes their Black characters into distant worlds, or they can write into the not-so-far future and have their characters deal with grounded issues that connect to issues today. Either one is fine. The beauty is that we're now in spaces where people can write those stories and that there's audiences who want to read them. Your book was published in 2013, about exactly a decade ago. And, and since then, there has been this huge renaissance in the interest in Afrofuturism from Black Panther to the Metropolitan Museum's Afrofuturist period room to this upcoming major show at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Oh, and we have to also note the Carnegie Hall Afrofuturism Fest, which I co-curated. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And because you're the curator of that, you might have some thoughts about the mainstreaming of the term. Does it carry a different kind of energy now? You have kids now and students, families, people who can grow up in a world where they can easily access books, comics, music, tales of all kind that are in Afrofuturist and Black speculative spaces. So they can be really excited about comics and that's normalized. They can turn on their television or their streaming site and they can see references that tie into Afrofuturism. They can see Black characters in their sci-fi stories. So all of that, I think, is good. So as somebody who's pretty deeply engaged with the contemporary Afrofuturist scene, what are some um, figures that people can or should look to now? Well, there's a lot of really interesting music in the jazz world or the experimental music world. I think people should look to Nicole Mitchell. She's a flautist and composer. More Mother is a great both rap artist and a producer. I think it's fun to look to Angel Bat Dawid. She's a wonderful writer. John Jennings, who I mentioned earlier, just wrote the Silver Surfer Ghostlight five-book series from Marvel. Literally took a character who was in one of the Silver Surfer issues in the late 60s, a Black character, and regenerated that character as a superhero. We named Ghostlight. There's a lot going on. I mean, I almost feel like I could just keep naming people for days. Finally, Yatasha, I wanted to ask you about Rayla 2212. Rayla 2212 was the first Afrofuturist novel that I wrote. And it's an outgrowth of my research and contemplation and putting together the Afrofuturism book. 
I learned something really interesting about Afrofuturism as a process and method while I was writing the Afrofuturism book. As I initially began writing about the story, I thought of myself as this reporter interviewing people who viewed themselves as more central to Afrofuturism than I did at the time. As I was in the midst of it, I had the story idea that became so compelling. And it was a story about a woman named Rayla who lived on this former Earth-inhabited space (laughs) that was designed to be utopian. And the utopian world was turned upside down. She's third generation deep into this world and has to find these missing astronauts who tried to teleport and never came back. It winds up being a story that mixes both reincarnation and time travel. She has to go into previous lifetimes. It's a bit of the Sankofa element I mentioned before. And this whole story almost felt like it came out of like, you've heard expressions like something coming out of the head of Zeus or it's like it's birth from nowhere. It really felt like I just had this whole world of a story that's sprung from nowhere. And it happened as I'm just in the midst of interviewing and writing the Afrofuturism book. And it became so compelling that I said I have to stop, write it as an e-book. I came up with a whole campaign. I launched it. And the very next day, someone said, oh, I read it. It's amazing. When's the next one out? And I said, oh, my goodness. So that's when I actually sat down and wrote it as a novel. And I wrote a second book, Ray Led 2213. I wrote these books. And it was really my own Afrofuturist experience, a conscious Afrofuturist experience that I'm having with the benefit of knowing the term Afrofuturism. And my takeaway from that is that our creative explorations and our contemplations, you know, as these thought leaders are informed, they inform one another. And so it made sense to me after that project for someone like a W.B. Du Bois, who we know for his theories about the color line and et cetera, to be both a sociologist and write this really interesting theory, but also make time to write science fiction stories or what we're now identifying as science fiction or fantasy stories. It's like, of course he did, because you need an imaginative realm to think about how these ideas play out. And so for me, it really became the basis for my process and opened me up as an artist, you know, where I was able to claim not just my journalism skills or my writing skills, but to think of my writing or dance from an art standpoint. Well, there you go. Uh, Afrofuturism, the book is the theory and Rayla 2212 is the practice. (laughs) So... (laughs) Thank you so much, Natasha, for talking with me. This has been a really thought-provoking and really informative conversation for me. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. This has been amazing. That is it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thank you for listening, and see you next week.